church. My name is Stephen, and I serve as uh, the pastor of the Point Church down in Federal Way. Uh, as to why I am here, if you don't know, I served as the church planter in residence here for almost two years um, through March of this year, or May of this year, sorry. Uh, in May, I uh, started our church planting journey with my wife, Jess, and our daughter, Sparrow, um, down in Federal Way. And last time I was with you guys, uh, that evening we had our building dedication service that went incredibly well. Um, I mean, just so much prayer and praise uh, over that building and over what God is going to do in that building. Uh, and then this uh, coming week, actually, the 23rd, we have our first preview service. And so we are preparing to launch our this preview service. Um, it's a big deal. It's, it's a uh, a really exciting moment in the life of our church, the first time that we get to kind of run the play and see what it's going to look like to, to have uh, what we think is going to be our worship services in our building. It'll be five o'clock um, next week. So if any of you guys are, are free and want to come down, we'd love to have you. Uh, we're, we've been trying to invite some neighbors and some people who don't know Jesus, so we would really love for them not to walk into an empty building. But if they do, that's okay. God will fill it, uh, and it will be fine. Uh, but we're just so excited because God's grace has been so evident. Um, and you guys, as the Hallows, are a big piece of that. Um, not only did you guys host me and my wife um, for two years, but you also sent us with a very generous support check as well that helped in that remodel and helped uh, for us to to be able to get a space where people can become seen, heard, and known so they can see, hear, and know Jesus. And so uh, we're just so thankful for you guys and so excited that whenever I get to come back and do this with you guys, this is my favorite thing with some of my favorite people. So uh, very, very honored to be back. Uh, today, we're going to continue our uh, series through the book of Luke. Luke is a, uh, a biography of the life of Jesus, um, and it is uh, the, the series that we've been uh, going through called uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, Story for Sinners and Sufferers, and I love that uh, because it covers us all, right? All, all of us are sinners, all of us are sufferers, um, and it's just this beautiful um, chance to kind of look at the life of Jesus and see how we can learn from it. And this passage specifically, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one because Jesus, uh, across all of history, has, has been proclaimed as at least a great man. At the very least, people say what he taught, if, if people lived like that, for the most part, the world would be better. Right, you know, if, if people were putting others in front of themselves, if they were being loving, if they were being accepting, whatever, whatever things people want to put on Jesus and his teachings, people can agree. And across multiple of the major religions, he is is revered at least as a good man or a good teacher or a prophet. But what's really interesting is Jesus had a very different idea of what great looked like. So we as the, the, the world reveres Jesus for one thing, we as Christians revere him for another, but I think Jesus would have defined his own greatness in a very different way. And see, greatness is, a, is something that's like really important in my family. I have, I have five brothers, there's six of us, um, and I am the oldest and the greatest of those uh, six, and um, we are incredibly competitive. And when I say like competitive, yes, we have, you know, I was a college athlete and, and my brothers all played sports, but like it, 
it doesn't really matter what it is. Like, we are competitive. Like, uh, family game night is a bloodbath. Like, it is, we take no prisoners. Uh, we play, there's a, a game that we like to play called Cranium. And if you've ever played Cranium, um, it's, a, it's a kind of like Trivial Pursuit, but way better. Um, and I know most of the answers. I don't know any of the Trivial Pursuit answers. So, uh, so I really enjoy the game. And the way that we do it, because there's so many of us, because there's six of us, plus our parents, plus, you know, now, now we have wives involved and girlfriends. And so um, we have, uh, we break into teams. And I would love to tell you that I am a big enough man that I would look at my wonderful wife, who is much smarter than I am, has more degrees than I have, was a much better student than I have. And I say, you know what? Jess, I want you on my team. But Jess was such a great student because she studied and she really prepared for questions and she, was, she knew all the answers before stepping in. When you put her under pressure, it's not real great. Um, and the cranium is like nothing if not under pressure in our family. So I don't pick her for my team. In fact, I start immediately like choosing the people that I know will be the best chance at me winning because that's all that matters to me. I want to assert my dominance. I want everyone to know how great I am by winning a meaningless game. I want to grab that Play-Doh at the end and throw it down and be like, what now? I have won again. Now, I know it's my team that has won, but really, in my mind, it's me that has won, right? So greatness has defined, or as pursuit of greatness has defined a lot of my life. And I have always thought, and, and, and most people always think that greatness really is about being great. That greatness is about being first, about winning, about accruing the most wealth, or, or having the most status, or having the best friends and people around you. But Jesus seemed to have a very different definition of what greatness was. Jesus seemed to say that greatness was pretty much anything but what I just described. And when one of the, the biggest things that Jesus did while he was on earth was explain how the kingdom of heaven would work. You know, the kingdom of heaven is, is kind of a twofold thing. The kingdom of heaven is, is first of all, a, an eternal kingdom. So when, when uh, a couple months ago, Corey Sharishi preached a really good uh, message on uh, what, what it looks like to be a new heaven and a new earth, right? There will be a literal new earth that we will all live in, and it will be the kingdom of God, and this is how that kingdom will be. I guess we'll all be fully regenerated, and everything will be, will be awesome. Jesus will be here walking among us. It's going to be a great time. But the kingdom of heaven is also something that is currently being built. So it's something that is and something that is to come, which I don't really understand how that works, but I don't understand how God works most of the time. So, uh, like, that's okay. But there's, there's a kingdom of heaven that is, and there is a kingdom of heaven that is to come. And it seems like when Jesus was teaching about this kingdom, that a lot of what he did was deconstruct our kingdom, our cultures, our things, so that his could be built. And he does that multiple times here in this small passage. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 56. Sorry, verse 46. This is right off of um, a story where, so Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples. He's taken three of them up to a mountain. They see the glory of God. They hear God's audible voice. They see two dead dudes. (laughs) <laughs> like kind of cool they build houses for these guys so apparently like these dead dudes like had some kind of body 
dead guys were named Moses and Elijah. They were two Old Testament prophets. So now the, the, the disciples are starting to f- kind of feel themselves a little bit, right? Like, hey, you know, like we, you know, we were fishermen. <laughs> we had very little. Now this Jesus dude, like he's chosen us. Now this Jesus guy, not only so then you have the 12, then you have the three that got to go up on the mountain with Jesus. And those guys are like, yo, I, I have arrived, right? This guy is the Messiah, and I am close to him. So immediately, the conversation turns to, well, who is the greatest? I mean, I know we're all great. Like, there's, you know, 12 of us that are great, but really the three of us are really great. And then we have these, these two brothers, James and John. We, we know this because this is a parallel passage with Mark chapter 9. So in Mark, it's another gospel or another biography of Jesus' life. Mark tells us a little bit more of this story. And, and the argument is actually between these two brothers that were part of the three, and they're like, who's the greatest? Who gets to be at the right hand of Jesus. Who is going to be, in their minds, who is going to be a king? And what's really interesting is, is they had a very earthly mindset. They're not thinking about heaven. They're thinking about earth. They, think, they still think Jesus is going to be king. And he's going to get them out of Roman rule. And he's going to set himself up as king. And they are kind of competing for who's going to be the greatest. And so we see in chapter 9, verse 46, an argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, that, this one is great. So Jesus does a lot right here that, that really would have irked the disciples. First of all, they probably didn't want Jesus to overhear this conversation. They were probably fighting amongst each other, and then like it was just supposed to be like behind closed doors. But Jesus is God, so he knows our thoughts. So so he knows what's going on. So this is probably they're a little upset that Jesus even like heard what was going on, a little embarrassed. But then Jesus grabs a child. And says, anyone who welcomes this child welcomes me. And, and see, this, you know, we, we can have a Western current context for this, or we could have what the actual context was, what, what really it meant to the people. And, and so we need to know a little bit about Jewish culture and, and about history. So in the ancient Near East, in ancient Palestine, in Jewish culture, everything is about men. Everything. The household is built so that the man can do what the man needs to do. Children are kept away so that the man can do what he needs to do. Women do all of the housework, all the cooking, all the cleaning, all of that stuff so that men can have time to read the Bible and talk about the Bible or talk about the Torah at that point. In fact, there's a, uh, one of my favorite musicals, probably my favorite musical of all time. Uh, it's called Fiddler on the Roof, and they sing this song called Tradition, and, and it literally lays out exactly how the family structure is, and it's all about the papa. All of society was to prop up men. So when Jesus says, let me tell you about greatness, and brings a kid, it all of a sudden starts to deconstruct everything that these men have been raised to know. They had arrived, Right? 
not only were they now the husbands and the fathers, but they were also the chosen of the Messiah. And then some of them were even the chosen of the chosen of the Messiah. And so Jesus, with one sentence, says, all of that's gone, guys. You have lived your entire life thinking that everyone is there to meet your needs. But really to be great is to put others' needs above your own. And that was rough. To be great is to put others' needs ahead of your own. And I could just imagine the thought of these men who had been ingrained to think that their needs were the only needs. Their needs were most important. The whole world existed to give me what I need. And now Jesus is saying, no. Even at the pinnacle of your quote-unquote greatness, you've missed it. And now I'm going to take away some of what you think makes you great. We live in a world today that demands that our needs be met before anyone else's. Thus we live in a world where almost no one's needs are fully met. You see, one of, the broken, one of the results of brokenness in our world is that we do live selfish lives. In fact, culture tells us that if anyone is taking away from our joy or our peace or our whatever, we should just get them out of our lives. If someone's not contributing to you, just get them out. Now, let me say this. In areas of abuse, this is true. If there is abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, sexual, doesn't matter, those moments, gone. Those people do not deserve, and I think Jesus can, has, has things to say about that. But, guys, relationships cost you something, period. Relationships are, are essentially transactional, right? And sometimes you just have to give. Sometimes nothing comes from you having a relationship. Why do I think this is a biblical principle? What does Jesus get from a relationship with you? Jesus gets nothing out of a relationship with me. There's no transaction that goes like this that equals, right? I am a drain on the Father. And yet, he chooses to describe me as his bride. A relationship that costs me everything. He puts his own needs ahead of my needs, ahead of his own. See, in the kingdom of God, if our, if our needs are, sorry, in the kingdom of God, our needs are met because first, Christ is our source. He is all that we need. But also because if we are not demanding our own needs and instead taking care of others, everyone's needs would be met. If we as the church lived as Jesus had described I wouldn't have to worry about my needs being met because all of you would be worrying about my needs being met. And I would be worrying about your needs being met. And so Jesus begins to say, look, if everyone is putting others first, then really we would all be first. We might put ourselves last, but the way that God is creating this new kingdom all things that we need would be met. Nobody would demand greatness 
Nobody would demand that their needs are met above all else. In fact, in the parallel passage in, in, in Mark, Jesus puts it this way. So, and sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. We like to throw around the word service. We like to say that we're serving, right, in the church, serving our community, all those things. We all love to say that until we're actually treated like a servant. And then our needs aren't being met. Then it's, it's uncomfortable because I'm not great for serving. I'm really serving, right? Like if we're really serving, we're, all, we're putting ourselves on the bottom, but oftentimes our self-importance inflates our sense of service and says, like, well, I've earned something now. But Jesus is saying, look, you shall be last and the servant of all because he very clearly says that greatness is service. Period. Greatness is service. In fact, he would go on, so at the, in Mark, this uh, dissertation on the kingdom is much longer. Um, so at the end of chapter 10 of the Mark account of this story, it says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the greatest of all, the creator of the universe came to serve and not to be served. And what does this service look like? Well, John, who's one of these guys who's arguing about being the greatest, who by his own estimation is Jesus' best friend, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. John didn't seem to get it now, but at the end of John's life, seems like he, he understood. So he writes these letters to churches in Asia. We call them the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I love John. John sounds like a kind of a crotchety old grandpa. So, so Paul, who is another New Testament writer, he always greets people, right? Oh, I greet you with love and blessings, and I've heard about you, and I've prayed for you. And he, he does a really good job of, like, beginning letters and ending them. John doesn't even care. Like, John just starts. And then he, he says, okay, you guys, you didn't know Jesus like I knew Jesus. So let me tell you about what, who Jesus really is. That's what the tone of these letters is. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, he says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Harsh words. Because you see, we like to, to attach to the first part of that, laying down our lives, right? You know, some of us would say, I wouldn't say this, but some people would say, I would take a bullet for that person. I would pray for them after they got shot. I don't know that I would take a bullet for them. But like laying down your life seems noble, right? I would lay down my life. Another great musical that I really like is called Hamilton. And there's a line in Hamilton that says, Dying is easy, living is harder. So the laying down your life part, that's the easy part. In fact, I, I think this is what John's implying, is that Jesus' death was the easy part. What was hard was 
the 33 years preceding that where he served everyone. And so that's why John goes on to say he doesn't say anything about death. He talks about life. If you have the world's goods and you see someone in need and you don't give it to them, how can the love of God remain in you? Those are rough words. It seems like there's something about service that isn't about dying. It's about living. It's not a one-time great event. It is small things over and over and over and over again. It's draining and it's hard and it's long. But it's great. And so Jesus is, again, taking these cultural norms, and he's literally tearing down brick by brick by brick what these men understood, what they thought. Because another piece of this is Jesus takes a child, and Jesus brings the child front and center. And, and children in today's society, we think, oh, they're a blessing. We love them. In fact, I think we've gone too much in the other direction where we kind of worship our kids. Everything's about our kids. Our whole life is about our kids. In the ancient Near East, it's the complete opposite. The Talmud, which is their, uh, the, the ancient Jewish book of law. So it takes the, the initial laws that Moses laid down, and then it's just a bunch of writings of a bunch of other rabbis. They... This, there's a, a certain rabbi, and this is just a, a one text. There's many texts that support this. But this one rabbi equates spending time with children to day drinking. He says, here's some, useful, here's some useless things. Day drinking, spending time with kids. It's in their book of law. That's not like some like, weird you know, SNL skit. Like that, like, that's what they read and they're meditating on, right? Children were nothing. Children were not to be seen. Children were no better than servants until they reached adulthood. And Jesus says, hey, let me fix that for you. You welcome this child and you welcome me. You see, being great is serving people that no one notices, that no one sees. That is what true greatness looks like. These children, no one saw. In fact, we read later in Luke, uh, Jake read this earlier, later in Luke, we would, they, they would bring babies to him and the, the disciples rebuked them. These are babies who needed healed, right? There was something wrong with them. And they're like, no, get them away. So that's the, the, the view that we need to have when Jesus comes up and says, this person. But it's not just children. Jesus does this constantly with marginalized people groups. Jesus takes women and he elevates them. Jesus chooses to heal them constantly and we hear those stories. Jesus goes to lepers who are on the outskirts of society and he heals them. Jesus goes to sex workers and he, he shows compassion and love to them. Jesus is all about serving those that we would rather not see. And he says that's what greatness looks like. So friends, if all of the people that we interact with, if all the people that we serve, if all the people in our lives are well-educated, well-off, the great of the great, we're not the men and women that the master has called us to be. We're just not. 
If we're not actively seeking broken and hurting people, both emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, if we're not actively there serving those people, then we're not being great. My senior year of film school, I, uh, I, I had a friend call me and say, hey, do you want to go shoot a documentary? And I said, absolutely. He said, okay, we leave in a week. And so my thought process was, would I rather go back to school and take finals or go shoot a documentary? So I dropped out of school and went and shot a documentary. I don't recommend this, but this is what happened. Um, so I went and I spent the next year and a half living on the streets with unhoused people. It's actually how I got to Seattle and how God's first planted the seed in my heart of coming here. And guys, that was, at that point in my life, 21 years old, I hadn't had a hard life, so that was the hardest year and a half of my life. Because everybody who came to me needed something from me. Some of them only came to me to get things from me. Whether that was money or time, or food, or alcohol, or IDs, or a job, whatever it was, they were always coming, always taking, always asking, and it drained me a lot. It was a very, very hard year and a half. After traveling and shooting the documentary, we actually opened a homeless shelter. We allowed people to come in, and, and we lived life with them. In fact, the 12 of us who won the shelter all lived in a studio apartment uh, about 700 square feet across the street. We, we served those that no one saw. And people got really mad because all of a sudden now they saw them for the first time because people were congregating in an area of town that they hadn't before. People were very upset about it. But I say that not to pump myself up because I, to be fair, to be honest, am, am glad that God has called me to something else. That was such a draining time of my life. If God would have called me to continue to do that for the rest of my life, I would have done so happily. I would have done that. But here's the thing. Maybe not everyone has call, is called to go and love those that are unhoused. I think all of us are, but maybe you don't feel that exact call. But there are people that God is calling you to serve that will only ever be a drain to you. That will, for the rest of their life or your life, depending on who goes to see Jesus first, may only withdraw and never deposit. Are we willing to be great by loving them? Are we willing to say, I will lay down my life, not at the end, but all day for them? Because it seems like it's what Jesus is calling us to. It seems like God is calling us to serve those who no one sees. And what that may mean is that we don't have, the, the company that we keep isn't the company that we thought we would keep, right? Have you ever met someone who's famous and then like gone and bragged to your friends about it? I have. Or do you know, maybe it's not you, maybe it's your friend, right? You know, it's Joe. Joe always talks about all the people that he knows and he name drops. He's a name dropper. Oh my gosh. It's because status and greatness are inexorably linked, right? And so we assume that we need to surround ourselves with great people. Now, I'm not telling you not to have friends that drag you toward being better. That's not what I'm saying. But if, that are the only, if those are the only friends, the only people that you have in your life, then we're not being who Jesus called us to be. 
Because let me tell you, Jesus didn't have any great friends. Not one. Tax collector, everybody hate that dude, including the Romans. Sex workers, fishermen, Samaritans. Who, who were Jesus' great friends? They didn't exist in the world's eyes. So if we're trying to live life like Jesus, maybe we should flip things on our head. Maybe Jesus was taking away those bricks of our earthly kingdoms and building bricks to the kingdom of heaven by showing us what it looks like to be surrounded by people that no one else sees, to love them and serve them. But ultimately, when we are friends with those people, we end up giving more than we get. What's really good about that is to be great. It's about giving and not what we get. Greatness is about what we give and not what we get, which is a completely upside-down idea. Normally, we achieve, you know, we look at, at someone like Bill Gates who, you know, owns the world or whatever, and we're like, he's great, he's a great man. Look, he made this company out of nothing. He's got all this stuff. He's a great person. We flock to these great people's TED Talks. We read their books. But what if greatness is so much more about what we give than what we get? And if we're around people who need, ultimately we're going to give more than we get. Maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about. Maybe Jesus understood that by being around people who needed what he was offering, which was not only a physical healing, which was not only a social and a cultural healing, but was also a deep spiritual healing, bringing death into life. Jesus knew that if he was around those people who needed, he would be giving more than he was getting and that the kingdom would grow. Do we give more than we get? So what's the response? What do the, what do the disciples do? They immediately think, okay, I got to deflect. I got to get the attention somewhere else. So John says this in Luke 49, 49 says this. John responded to this whole thing. This is his response. Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. John, don't get it yet. Uh, and then Jesus says, don't stop him, Jesus told him. Because whoever is not for you is against you. So immediately, like, the disciples are like, Whoop, we made a mistake. <laughs> Whoops. And so they try to deflect, right? They try to say, look, okay, I understand all your talk about greatness, Jesus. But there's a guy out there that's casting out demons, and he's not our friend. He shouldn't be doing that. That's essentially what they're saying, right? They're, like, they're, they're saying, like, hey, he's not one of us, so he doesn't deserve to cast out those demons. The only reason he's doing that is because he saw Jesus do that. He saw the disciples do that, and he understood the, the power of the name of Jesus. It doesn't say that this man was, like, you know, doing weird rituals. It didn't say this man was, was you know, was, was abusing the name of Jesus. It just says that the man was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And these people said, no, 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 no. That can't happen because they're not one of us. And I make that very comical, but let me make it very practical. We look at people who don't think like us, believe like us, act like us, and we do the same thing. 
Well, they sing hymns, so they shouldn't get people at their church. Well, they don't sing hymns, so they shouldn't have people at their church. Well, they have flags, and they use tambourines or whatever it is. We decide, we look at people who are praising the name of Jesus, who are proclaiming the gospel, and we're so angry that they don't do it like us because they're not like us that we say, like, they shouldn't be blessed. Guys, I'm a pastor. I'm around pastors a lot. I hear the same things with them, so it's not like a you and an us thing. It's an us thing. We just decide that someone else isn't as good because they're not one of us. And Jesus is like, what What are you doing? What are you doing? If someone is not against you, they are for you. Jesus knew that the world would not be for him. Jesus knew that we as Christ followers, even though Christianity may be one of the largest religions in the world, there are still way more people who don't follow Jesus than do. Way more. And I think what the enemy does so well is say, look, I'm going to give you this inflated sense of self-importance, that you understand the Bible better than them, that you're worshiping in the right way, that the way that your pastor preaches is the best way, that our Bible translation is the best one. Though none of us speak Greek or Hebrew, so we didn't, we don't know. We're just reading some guy who does, right? If they're not against you, they're for you. In fact, Paul, that early church father, he would write to the the church at Philippians, uh, at Philippi, and they they were complaining to him that there were people that were preaching Jesus' name and proclaiming the gospel for their own self-gain. And you know what Paul says? Let them do it. Who cares? Who cares if they're proclaiming the gospel and benefiting of it? At least the gospel's being proclaimed. Shouldn't have mega churches. Pastor shouldn't dress nice. Whatever it is that we want to do, the gospel's being proclaimed. Friends, why do we waste our breath? Because what we're doing is playing right into the enemy's hand. If the enemy can keep us looking at each other, then it keeps us from looking at the world and saying we need to love them and serve them. So friends, if someone decides that prophecy and tongues and healing are for today, and they're still proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, they're not your enemy. They're your friend. Someone decides to wear sneakers on stage, it's okay. Someone wears a suit, it's okay. Someone wears robes, It's okay. If the gospel's being proclaimed, that's the important piece. So so we see Jesus, I think, think face-palming, saying, no, stop. Because honestly, this this is pride. This is pride on the disciples' part that has continued to creep into our lives. And pride is a sin that we cannot often see in ourselves, but we detest in others, right? Astros and, and Seattle last night, right? When Pena ran around the bases after he hit his home run, most of us that were watching are probably angry. Ugh, can you see him celebrating? If Cal Raleigh would have hit that, though, we'd have been cheering like there was no tomorrow, texting our friends that are Astros fans, Right? We don't see pride in ourselves, but we detest it in others. And here's the thing, though. Self-importance and pride is a cancerous sin that's internal and causes a rot that we are so accustomed to. You know, there's a thing called, uh, oh, it's, 
uh, smell, her scent, fatigue. So you can't smell like what your own house smells like, right? You don't know that scent, but when other people come in, they notice it. It's because you're around it all the time. Pride, self-importance, is this cancerous rot inside of us where we can't smell it in ourselves, but the world smells it and it drives them away. It's a deep sickness that we often hold on to so hard and wonder why the world doesn't want to be involved in what we're doing. It's because they can see it and we can't. So for us to deal with the sin of pride, easiest is to put ourselves last and to serve most. Because see, greatness is shared. It's not demanded. The disciples demanded that they were given greatness. But Jesus was saying, no. The gospel, the kingdom, it's for everyone. Share what we have. Don't hoard it and hold it. And then the passage ends like this. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire from heaven down to consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. So two very contrasting reactions, right? James and John, again, chosen three. John, probably Jesus' best friend. They've just seen and heard the awesomeness of God on the mountain of transfiguration. Who's the greatest? Other people shouldn't cast out demons if they're not, you know, our friends. And let's consume an entire town with fire because they didn't give us a place to stay. Now, to explain the situation real quickly, first, James and John, this is not unprecedented. We have seen prophets do this in what we call the Old Testament, especially a man named Elijah. Elijah did this a couple times. Happens that Elijah was also one of the people that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, so there's, there's, there's a little bit of a connection there, right? The, the disciples have seen this guy recently. They think that Jesus is a prophet like Elijah. So like, like it's not like way outside of the, the bounds of, you know, what, what, what would have happened in their day. But the Samaritans had every reason to turn Jesus away. Every reason. If you don't know, quick history lesson, Samaritans were Jewish people that were left when uh, exile, when, when uh, the Assyrians came and conquered. Those people mixed with the Assyrians, built their own temple. And so when the Jews who were in captivity came back, they saw these people who were still related to them and said, you guys are apostates, you're half-breeds, we hate you, and so for the rest of history, they hate each other. Same people, living in the same place, they literally set up opposing temples. One in Jerusalem, one in Jerusalem, right? Boom. We worship here, you worship there. We're right, you're like, it's ridiculous. But that hatred is there, and it's deep-seated, hundreds and hundreds of years old at this point. So the Samaritans see a group of like 120, 150 people rolling up to their town, probably with not enough money to pay for everything that they want. And they're like, nah, bro, you got to go somewhere else. 
Not only that, but Jesus wasn't even planning to stay here. Jesus was just stopping over to go to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans had every reason to say, no, we probably don't want this. And their reaction of the disciples is, let's burn them with fire. To them, greatness not only was demanding, not only was greatness status, but greatness was vengeful. But Jesus here, by, by rebuking them, says, greatness is subtle and not vengeful. Greatness is about mercy, not about getting what you deserve. Because mercy is the complete opposite of that. And how do I know this? I know this because Jesus was on his way to show more mercy than has ever been shown. Jesus is on his way, knowing the beginning of, this, uh, of that small passage says, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up. Jesus is on his journey to be crucified. And Jesus, when he is betrayed and he is taken captive, he says, I could call a legion of angels to my side. As nails are being driven through his wrists, he is praying to his father, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus had every right, as great as he was, had every right to demand vengeance and gave mercy. Friends, that's how merciful we are called to be. We are called to be as merciful as we have been given mercy. When, we, when the disciples would ask how many times we should forgive someone, seven times, and that was like way more than they thought, and Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Jesus would say, if you don't forgive those on earth, I, my Father will not forgive you in heaven. Jesus had a, such a different idea of what the kingdom of God would be than we do. And so at the pinnacle of Jesus' life. At the moment where all of human history had been led up to, Jesus showed that greatness was service and greatness was subtle because he did not go out with a big bang. He didn't call crowds to himself. He died as a criminal, naked and beaten displayed for all to mock him, and he prayed for their forgiveness. So I want to invite us to the table, what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And I want us to reflect on this truth. The only person on earth who never deserved death, receiving death willingly, for you and for me, people who will only ever take from him and never add to him. That's the beauty of Jesus. It's what sets our understanding of God apart from everyone else. 
No other religion, no other thought, no other group of people claim that God stepped out of heaven to make himself lowly and weak, to die for them so that they wouldn't have to be lowly and weak and die. The creator of the universe came for me to serve me, not to be served. And his ask is that I serve others. His ask is that I follow his example, not in death, but in life. And so friends, as you take the elements, I want you to do it at your own pace because, man, when we understand the depth of Jesus and what he did, and how he lived and how he died. There are no words. So we're gonna sing, we're gonna focus our eyes and our hearts and our minds on Jesus and be so thankful for what he did. Let's pray.